I'm going to ask you if you have a, a Bible with you, maybe it's on your phone or your iPad, to open it up to Philippians chapter 4. And I know immediately some of you are thinking, where's my Roman study? Um, we'll get back to that next week. God really pressed hard on my heart in the last two weeks to go to Philippians 4 with you, and I think you're going to see why in just a minute. Um, before we get to the specific verse in Philippians 4, I, I want to show you a fairly hard question that Jesus asked, and, and he said it in the context in which there was a really large group of people gathered around him. And, and as you begin to pick up on where we're going with this, you may want to use your phone and text a friend right now and tell them to begin live streaming this message. They can go to the website, they can go to Facebook, but if you, knew, you know people who are dealing with anxiousness and anxiety in their life, this is going to speak exactly to where they're at. I'm just going to encourage you to contact somebody, go, tell them to go to the New Hope website, and, and they can begin watching this. Here's the really hard question that Jesus asked. He says this in Luke, 25, or Luke 12, 25. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And, and we don't even need to answer it externally because we know it Internally. Not anything we can do. So Jesus says, why are you worrying about that? Here's the context. There's a really large group of people that are gathered around Jesus. It looks like they're in the thousands. And some guy shouts out from the crowd, teacher, will you tell my brother to share the family inheritance with me? Jesus' response is, dude, who made me a judge over you? Well, he didn't say dude. He said, man, who made me an arbitrator over your situation? You've got your priorities wrong. So they've got God in their midst, and he's asking selfishly about an issue that has nothing to do with the bigger issue that Jesus is talking about. I encourage you later today to go to Luke 12. Look at it. It's one of Jesus' longest responses when that guy asked the question. And he says in the midst of that, which one of you can add a single hour by worrying to the span of his life? That's a match for what you find in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, I want you first to look at verse 6. If you have your Bible open or maybe it's on your phone, just go there to verse 6, and I'm going to take you to verse 19 in a minute. So Philippians 4, 6 says this, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, that's petition. That, that's coming before God with a humble heart. That's coming before God with this thanksgiving it's talking about. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The word anxious, if you look up the historical meaning for it in the original language, anxious means to be divided of mind, like pulling apart, spreading you at the seams. When we use the phrase man, that person's fallen apart. Well, that's where it comes from. To be anxious of the mind to the degree that you're just kind of separated in your spirit, going opposite directions even within yourself. That's the way Jesus is using this here. Why are you worrying about this and stressing over something you have no control over? So I want to pray with you right now before we step into this so that we really have our heart in the place where it's aligned with God so he can speak to us specifically, every one of us individually, about this issue that we're all prone to. There isn't one of us that doesn't struggle with the issue of contentment. Let me pray with you. 
Father, we come before you in recognition that these things that we talk about are not light. And, and yet you say that we can lean into you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to lean into you where there's anxiety right now. God, help us to lean into you where there's anxiousness of spirit. Move us to lean into your capacity, your strength, your supply. You alone are our supply and you are our wealth where everything else in this world is crumbling and fading and does not last. You are eternal. You never change. So, Father, focus us right now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Align our hearts with yours so that you can speak to us. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. This issue of contentment is very elusive. I feel it in my own life. I'm sure you feel it in yours. It constantly is dragging at us, trying to pull us away from what our greater purpose is. So I need to mentally assemble with you two components in order to move forward into this issue of contentment and the absence of anxiety in your life. And the first component I want to assemble with you is this thought, and it is a truth. God never changes. Amen, church? God never changes. How do we know that? He says that. He says that about himself. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Regardless of what society would like to believe, God does not change. So in Leviticus, or in Numbers, we find him in chapter 23 saying, God is not a man that he should lie. Why clarify it that way? Because men are prone to lie, say one thing, and do another thing. God says, I'm not like that. I don't tell you one thing and then do something different. So God is constant. Therefore, Jesus is constant. That's why you find the writer of Hebrews 13 saying in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes because Jesus is God. Meaning this for us, God never changes. That means things around us change. The friends that Lori and I had when we were in college, who were our close friends at that time, are acquaintances now, but they're not our close friends anymore. We have a close friends years later that are a different social circle group. You have different friends that move in and out of your life. You have different jobs. We have different houses. Things change. Our circumstances change. Earthly leaders come and go, but he is ceaseless in his nature, in his character, in his existence, he never changes. That's why the Bible calls him the ancient of days. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God because he never changes. And because he never changes, get your amens ready for this, because he never changes, we can believe everything that he says. Everything. Because he doesn't lie. So when he says he has capacity to supply, you can believe it. And that's what Philippians 4.19 says. It's a match to Philippians 4.6. Philippians 4 is actually an anxiety chapter because it talks about God meeting your needs. So 4.19 says, and my God will supply all your needs, not some of them, all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So parents... If you're a parent today, I want to speak to you. If you're a mom, I especially want to lean into that. If you've got that responsibility over little ones, regardless if you're a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt, hear this from God's own word. Stop stressing over the unknown. 
God says, I want you to enjoy what I've already blessed you with, what you have. Be blessed with that. So maybe you need to do what I'm trying to learn to do more often in my life, which is say, God, you are able. God, you are able. God, you are able to meet the needs of my siblings. You are able to meet the needs of my children, of my parents, of my friends, of my own life. You are able. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me on three, and I want you to say it out loud, that he is able. One, two, three. He is able. There's something about saying it out loud. God, you are able. Say it out loud in your prayers to him. God, you are able. I am not, but you are. So I lean into what you commit. When we are surrendered to him and his purposes, he will supply because God does not lie. It's just that he does it in his timing, and it feels like he's ignoring us. But God says, I supply even before you know that you have a need because I know everything. I see everything. So I've been thinking about this in relation to our churches. We've been talking about building a building. If we need an additional $2 million, God knows that, right, church? He knows that. God has the capacity. He is able. So if we need additional money, he has the resources to do it. Some of it may still be in your wallet, but he has the resources, right? Okay? He can do this. I don't want to get off track, so let me jump back in with you. So number one, the Bible tells us God never changes. Number two, we are made in his image. The Bible also tells us that. The imago Dei, that's Latin. The imago Dei, we are made in his image. Where does that come from? Genesis 1.26. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he, him, male and female. He created them in some mysteriously amazing way. God took a selfie when he made you. There's this transfer. God says, I'm putting my image upon you. You have been built to reflect the one who is everlasting, who never changes. Built in the image of the perpetual God, built to be in relationship with him, primarily first and foremost, built to be social creatures. So having the image of God means simply this, you're made to resemble made to reflect. Adam did not resemble God in flesh and blood because Scripture says that God is a spirit, John chapter 4. So if he's spirit, why does it say that he's got a head and he's got hands and he's got feet and he's got a strong right arm? Well, God's helping us to understand in terms that we can understand. But God is spirit. So Adam didn't look like God in flesh and blood necessarily in the way that we would think of. The imago Deo the, um, the image of God refers to the immaterial part of humanity. It's what sets you apart. You're different than all of creation. God has done something with you that he didn't do with any other created being. Now, many things altered in the human race because of the fall of man. Some things changed, but some things remain constant, are still the same. There are still echoes of the original imprint of God upon you. I want to show you three of those right now, three of the biggies. We're going to talk about how morally, how mentally, and how socially you reflect the image of God. We still maintain a likeness morally, socially, mentally. Here's mentally. You have been created rational, even though you may not always feel rational. God created you rational, meaning this, you can reason, 
and you can choose. You can do things with your mind. That is a reflection of God's intellect and God's freedom. So, if we invent or if we write a book or if we compose a poem or if you enjoy a a musical composition or perhaps you work on a mathematical equation or perhaps you solve some complex issue, you work to research a problem, God says, you're made in the image of God. I'm I'm God's image. When you're doing those things because our God is a builder, we use our mentality that way. The animal world can't do what we do morally. We talked about mentally. How do you do that morally? Well, you were created originally in God's righteous image, meaning innocent, before the fall of man. That's a reflection of God's holiness. Scripture says in Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything that he made, and when he saw it, he said, it's not just good, he says it's very good. That's a reflection of his holiness. So, how do you see that in your life? Well, your conscience, the thing that you live with every single day, the thing that nags at you and draws you away from right and wrong, your conscience is a reflection of that original state. So whenever someone writes a law or recoils at something horrible in the news or has a sense of, I need to praise that one because they did a really good thing, or you have a sense of feeling guilty, made in God's image, that's a reflection of that moral conscience that God has given you. What about socially? Uh, This one really resonates with us because we were created for fellowship. It's the purpose of the church, not only to glorify God, but for two saints to do life together. That's a reflection of the triune nature of his being and his love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfect relationship reflected in us. So originally, we're primarily built for relationship with God, but God said it's not good for man to be alone. God makes women because we need relationship. We need each other. God designs us that way. Why? Because God is a lover of fellowship. He is a lover of relationship. Now, assemble those two components. One is that God never changes. And two is that you have been made in his image to resemble him for relationship. And begin asking yourself this question. What part of me is the best reflection of that God then. In other words, I asked you last week, how do people see Jesus in you? How are you a reflection of that God who has made you in his image? Now, if you want to know more about his image, you don't have to go far because it's littered throughout Scripture. He constantly talks about himself in ways of description. I'm going to give you one of those things about his nature right now. For instance, You're going to think this is a weird one, but just stay with me. This is the only one we're going to bear down on today. God tells us that he is a jealous God. He says that's a characteristic of him. How do we know that? Because he tells us. Let me show you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 says this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with church, you're new to church, you're thinking, who wants to look like that? I don't want to be known for that characteristic. Why would I want that imprint? Now, maybe you're not new to church. You might be thinking, well, I bet Mark's got some ancient Hebrew word to help us understand that, right? <laughs> well, you're in luck if that's what you're thinking, because I do. I want you to see the word. It's the word kwana. It's in your notes. And doesn't that definition help you a lot? All right? 
Like, no kidding. You go to your ancient resources looking for information on these old Hebrew words, and you find a single description. Quana means jealous. Okay, so that causes us to recoil, like, what is this talking about? See, here's our struggle. Our struggle is we immediately think envious. We think jealousy to the degree that it produces greed. We think suspicious. Those negative associations, they stem out of our fallen nature. We naturally go to a negative attribute because we've seen jealousy ugly. We've never seen jealousy good. Well, here's the truth. If it's an attribute of God and God is good, then there must be something good about this jealousy thing that he's talking about. And it's really important that we get it down because this has screwed up a lot of people. I can point you to a very famous American celebrity who really struggled over this and walked away from church. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. Somebody told her that God is a jealous God, and when she read it in the Bible and backed it up herself, said, yeah, that's, that is what it says. I want nothing to do with that. And she writes in her own books, I left church because of that. Nobody explained to her what that meant. What biblically God's saying when he says, I am a jealous God. So how do I understand this? Well, first and foremost, you need to know this, that God does not need anything. So therefore, God is not envious. And therefore, God is not greedy. And he knows everything. So therefore, God is omniscient. He doesn't have to be suspicious. He's definitely not there. How do I understand that? What does that perfect jealousy look like? And if you're really brave and you're a Christ follower, you might want to ask yourself, am I supposed to look like that too? What, what does that mean for me? Well, jealousy in the biblical sense is this thought, for a singleness of focus, zealous to the degree that you're devoted to one particular thing. Now, we know that this is true of God because we pick it up from the Big Ten, and I'm not talking about the sports of the Big Ten. I'm talking about the Big Ten, Ten Commandments. Watch how God reveals the jealousy as it comes out of the Ten Commandments. You go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, and God says this, I am the Lord your God. The very next thing he says when you come to verse 3 is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't put anything else in front of your relationship with me. You know what? Next verse, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 4, go to verse 5, and he says, and I'm a jealous God, by the way. You go to verse 7, he says, don't even take my name in vain. By the time you make it down to verse 12, you find that part of our devotion to him, singleness of focus, is reflected in him saying, and by the way, if you're devoted to me, you better be exalting your mama and your daddy. Verse 12, that's what it says. Every one of you, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged. It's the first commandment with a promise, if you never noticed that before, to the degree that we're to hold our family in this place of a position of reverence. Look at Leviticus with me on the screen. Leviticus 19, every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. I am the Lord your God. The word reverence is Yahweh, and it means to make weighty, to, to hold them in such esteem that you hold them in the place of Ah, Now, there's a problem. Scripture gets dicey when you hear the same God say, you better honor your mama and your daddy. 
also tell us that you better not let anything get in the way of your relationship with me, that we must put every family member in the back seat when it comes to God. Why does he do that? Now, let me show you. If Jesus is God, what God says, look with me on the screen at Luke 14. This passage has also messed up a lot of people. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate? What? And that's Jesus saying that? What do I do with that? What is he talking about? At a minimum, it feels like a contradiction. Hey, it must be some other ancient word that helps us understand that, right? So there is in this case. The word hate is the word maseo. And, and when Jesus uses this word, it, it does mean to love less. God says, I'm here. Your family is here. Why is he doing that? If God never changes and Jesus is God, you find God using the strongest image possible. When he commands us, he tells us, make him first in everything. Now, to be honest with ourselves, if it came down to it, it'd be much easier if we could just insert our own words there like this. If Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, he must hate his job, right? If anyone comes to me, he must hate his house, or he must hate his car. Well, those are material things. They don't hurt as much. They would hurt, but they wouldn't hurt as much. There'd be a lot less pain with that. See, what this is telling us is that just how focused your God is, just how focused he is on the focus of your devotion to him, that it would be undivided. So he holds the measuring rod to the absolute highest standard, saying even though the family is the greatest thing, even though you were created for relationship with them, even though they're most preeminent and you hold them to the highest position to the degree that you reverence them, I'm telling you, don't put them before me. I insert the word family there. Now, I want to drill down a little bit deeper with you, if we haven't gone deep enough already. Moms, I'm going to pick on you for just a minute. I hope that's okay. It's Mom's Day can I, so I can do that, right? Even if you don't want me to, I'm going to do it. So for moms, here's what I know after watching my mom, watching my grandmother, watching my wife. I know that for moms, there is nothing more precious than family. Nothing more precious in the family than the relationship with the offspring of the family, which in some cases is the children. So the, the mom, we understand, is so focused that to even consider placing a little one in a position of second place to anything seems absolutely counterintuitive. When you read things like that, it seems extraordinary, selfish on God's part to be so demanding. He appears to be selfish. Using it the right way, we better make sure we're understanding what he's talking about here. Because in Scripture, we're seeing that we were created in his image and his likeness. So it stands to reason that this same imprint should be found in us. Jealousy placed in us in the right way. So moms... Where do you find that characteristic within yourself, that type of zealousness? I'll help you with that. Just a quick example. When a child is injured, instinctively, they need to be held. They look desperately 
for their mom. Generally, it's the arms of moms that children want to go to. Mom, in turn, becomes zealous like a mother hawk with the wings spread around that little one, that little one who needs comfort, wholly focused to the degree that in my own life, I witnessed this lots of times. Lori and I could be in conversation, and one of the kids comes screaming through the door, Mom, Mom! And the conversation stops immediately. The, the, the hawk mom goes like laser focus, and the arms spread around that child. Rarely did the kids come blowing through the door and say, Dad, Dad! Right? Unless they wanted retribution on somebody. But when they want comfort, they go to the one who nurtures Rarely do my kids call out for dad. Why? Because they know they're going to get the adoring, zealous, passionate, nurturing response from the feminine side. In the image of God, he made them male and female. And we see this nurturing characteristic of God emerging, the one who nurtures causes the ones who have a need to go to the one who will supply all their needs. That's what Philippians 4 says. My God will supply all your needs. So we read in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. You know the phrase, male and female, he created them. So God's imprint, his image is on women in such a way that, ladies, you exhibit a love that nurtures and comforts and protects. And as children learn by watching, and they absolutely do, they in turn discover the characteristic of this God who is a nurturer. So a woman who is fully devoted to God, fully focused on his purposes, is able to communicate an unconditional love of compassion and nurturing in a way that men are just not hardwired to do. So ladies, you have an awesome responsibility. And along with that, God gives an awesome promise. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 40. And many people, when they, if they know the Bible and they think of Isaiah 40, they think, well, that's the passage the prophet wrote about the greatness of God. Isaiah 40 starts out with saying, who is like unto God? And by the time you get to verse 39 at the end of it, it says he's so great that even if you become weary and faint-hearted, God raises you up on wings like eagles. But buried in the middle of chapter 40, you find this awesome commitment from God. Now, the he here is God when it says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Check this last phrase out. He gently leads those that have young. Moms, you've got those young ones. God says, I'm like that one who gently leads those that have young. So let me bear down in that last sentence with you. He gently leads. Nahal is the Hebrew word that's used there. Nahal has more meaning to it than just leads. It means conduct. So if you think of conducting, you're guiding, like a conductor directing a symphony or a conductor on a train, guiding people onto the train. He gently conducts. He protects. He sustains. So lead, in this case, means to protect and to sustain. So ladies, for all the strength and for all the grace that being a woman requires, there is this aspect in which it requires God's protective leading through you. He's hardwired you that way with his imprint on you. And he says, I do it gently and I'm gracious. 
So along with his guidance promise, he says, I will sustain and I will protect, and your mind should be going to Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs. So we lack the passion when we look at these passages. We just read them through as though it's library information. Be anxious for nothing because my God will supply all your needs. Remember the context in which these people are writing these things, in which Christians are being executed by Rome constantly when they're reading these things that God will meet them at the point of their need. How can he say that? Because he never changes. Because he's always the same. So because he never changes, we can be sure God has the capacity to supply every need that you have. That's why Jesus said, which of you by worrying can add one hour to your life? You can't do it. Do you know that when you read Luke 12, you're going to find that Jesus actually called that a little thing? If you had the power to add one hour to your life, would you think that's a little thing? No, you wouldn't. God says that's a little thing. And he says, if you can't even handle the little thing, why are you stressing over all those? I I can't add hours to your life. You can't do it. I can supply all your needs. So when you watch families up here at dedication time on Sundays like this where parents bring their children before God, you're seeing this amazing imagery of the singleness of focus, of this devotion to God, surrendering a life, a family member, or even ourself to God is the greatest measure of devotion. It's focused the way God expects it. So here's what I hear God telling me in the midst of this. I think he's telling you the same thing. God's telling us, why are you letting those little things sidetrack you? Whatever that issue is you came in with this morning, whatever you're stressing over, that anxiety, God says, I got this. Why are you worrying over the things I can take care of? Why is that sidetracking you from your greater purpose? Because if you're putting something else before me, you can't be my disciple. Here's a very simple, greatly condensed illustration for you. I used Hannah as a reference earlier in 1 Samuel. You know that when Hannah brought Samuel before God, I told you earlier he was only a little two-year-old guy, she had no idea what was in the package. She had pleaded before God that God would meet her need and give her a child. And then when God meets her need and gives her a child, she's willing to say back to God, okay, he's still yours. You gave him to me. And verse 28 says, I dedicate him to you all the days of his life. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to you. What's Hannah doing in that case? She's living out what we've just been examining here. Holy focused Her relationship to God is greater than her own personal needs because God says, I got your needs. I'm already taking care of them. So don't put something else in front of me. So she willingly turned Samuel over to God. And you know that Samuel stood as the one who was in the dividing line between the nation coming back to God and abandoning God. And he led the nation even though she didn't know what was in the package. Translate that thought, church, over to your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who gave his one and only son because he's so zealous towards you and so wholly focused because he's a jealous God and he wants us in relationship with him to the degree that he gives his only son. 
that we would be wholly focused back on Him. That's the image that God's pulling out of this, not just to guide a nation back, but to guide all of creation back to Him. That is jealousy in the right sense, fully devoted, singleness of focus. Church folk, you have heard all your life that you're made in the image of God. To be immersed in that, to fully understand that, means to bear God's image on your life in such a way that you are overwhelmed with the magnificence of your potential, of what God sees in you and what you can be, and at the same time, to be satisfied with his provision and his protection over you. God does not ask you to be something that he is not. You're made in his image So where he is gentle, he asks you to be the same. Where he is relational, he asks you to be the same. Where he is sacrificial, he asks us to be the same thing. So since God built you, he alone can show you how to reach your greatest potential. So your satisfaction is not in these things that you chase after for contentment. I have to remind myself of that all the time. I'm preaching to myself, people. We have to remind ourselves because of this materialistic society that we live in, and we're surrounded by things that crumble. Say amen if you believe this. Your contentment does not come in the things that you chase after that are material. It doesn't. But yet we're drawn to it even though they don't satisfy. So earlier I asked you to ask yourself this question. What part of me is the best reflection of the image of God on me? So I'll back that up with another question. Do you have such a contentment in your life that when other people look at you and they observe you, and they know you're in relationship with God, can they see you chasing after more and more and more and more stuff or after more and more and more God? A mentor in my life many years ago said to me, Mark, can you be content with the relationship? Can you, Christian, be content with the relationship? Here's four things just as I land this plane for you to examine for yourself and and see if these are things that you can put into your own life. Because I understand that true contentment, it really stems from relationship. The, The God who never changes, who says, I am your supply, this is where I would start. First of all, acknowledge to God that he is good. He's good, right, church? He's good. God, you're good. Look at what you blessed me with. We live in the United States of America, people. God, you're good. We get to sit in an air conditioning building on Sunday morning with no fear that somebody's going to take our life. God, you are good. I made it to church today. God, you are good. That's That's a great place to start. Start there and then realize that God is omniscient. He knows your needs long before you ever know you have a need. That's why Jesus said, your father knows you need these things. Luke 12, he's not unaware. Number three, recognize that God is sovereign. And and that's, that's a hard one for us, church. He does not have the same plan for everyone that he has for you. 
What he lovingly gives to one person, he lovingly withholds from another person. And that's hard because we compare. Like, God, they got that. Why don't I have that? God lovingly gives to some and he lovingly withholds from others. It's not a measure of what you do have or don't have. It's a measure of what are you doing with what you do have. It's a stewardship issue. So God says, I'm sovereign. I'm over these things. Here's the fourth one. Remind yourself what true wealth really is. If you're a Christ follower, you'll understand this. Colossians speaks to it. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on this earth. That's why Jesus says you can't add an hour more to your life. What are you stressing over these things on planet earth about? True contentment comes from relationship with the one who knows you best, and that relationship happens through Jesus Christ. And the more you focus on Jesus, the less you're going to be concerned about the material. I know it's easy to say on a Sunday morning, especially on Mom's Day, when we're all feeling pretty good about what's going to happen in the next hour. We're going to get food in our bellies, right? We feel good about this stuff. But true contentment, it stems from this relationship with Jesus, and the more you focus on him, the less you become concerned about the material because of this reason. When you are nearer Jesus, you become overwhelmed with the wealth that you have. Were you thinking about new cars when you were just singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, you're not doing that because you're closer to God. You're worshiping. Your mind's on heavenly things. The closer you get to him, the more overwhelmed you are. And he is able. He's able to meet the needs of your kids, of your siblings, of your mom and dad, of your friends, Put it in his hands because he is constant. He never changes. And that God who is constant is always zealous toward you, right? Even when you're not, this is the humbling part, even when we're not fully zealous toward him, and that, that part crushes me because I know my, my attentions get distracted. But even when we're not, God's focused on us. So that's why he can say in Philippians 4, here's where we're ending. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's finish verse 7 together, church. Let's read this together out loud. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Last part's really important, isn't it? It's in Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us that way. Father, I believe and I feel that you have focused our hearts. You've done exactly what we requested in the beginning, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us. So God, having, having zoned in on this and how you've pressed on our individual lives, I don't know, only you know what's going on here. I pray, Father, that you would not let this quickly escape from our mind. We're prone to let it happen. We're prone to get in the car and start driving someplace and forget. God, bring this to memory. That we would be of such a people that as others, when they look at us, would say we're chasing after you and not chasing after stuff. 
Make that true of us, Father. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.